This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Cliff Eidelman, composer for Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, and you are listening to Standard Orbit on Trek FM. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. If we wish to make it louder, we will bring up the volume. If we wish to make it softer, we will tune it to a whisper. We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. We can roll the image, make it flutter. We can change the focus to a soft blur or sharpen it to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. We repeat, there is nothing wrong with your television set. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to the outer limits. Welcome everyone to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I'm your host, Zach Moore, and with me this week is the host of the Outer Limits podcast, Mr. Victor Gamboa. What's up, Victor? Hey, Zach. How's it going, man? I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm a huge fan of your show. Oh, I appreciate that, man. Yeah, so so we kind of became aware of each other through our friend Tom Elliott's The Twilight Zone podcast. And he was on Standard Orbit 186. Defined by a sword in his hand. And that's when we talked about Twilight Zone episodes that featured TOS main cast members in leading roles. And, you know, that's the Twilight Zone. And the Outer Limits and the Twilight Zone are kind of like sister shows, anthology shows from, you know, the late 50s, early 60s, that time period. And so I thought, hey, it'd be fun to do the same thing with the Outer Limits because there's a lot of crossover between all these shows coming out at the same time, being genre, being sci-fi. And who better to talk about it? with the man who's in charge of the Outer Limits podcast. So welcome aboard, Victor. <laughs> Thank you so much, Zach. Yeah, there's so much crossover between Star Trek and the Outer Limits. It's funny, like when I do research for each episode, you can't come across, I mean, you can't research without coming across you know, a Star Trek credit, especially in these episodes we're going to cover today. There's actually, aside from the big four we have, like each episode features at least two other people who appeared in multiple episodes of Star Trek. I noticed that there's just there's Star Trek is all over these episodes. Like I'm like, oh, I'm gonna watch this one because James Doohan is in it. Oh, there's two more people right now, and off the, the two main characters. So that, for example, <laughs> right. shocking to me. But uh, Victor, let me ask you this: Star Trek, where do you stand on it? The original series? Are you a fan? Do you have favorites? Well, I'll tell you right now, I'm definitely a fan. Um, growing up, it's one of those things where I always knew about Star Trek without knowing what Star Trek was. If that makes any sense, like I would go to my friend's house and then. I remember vividly my my next door neighbor. We would go over, and he had a model of the Enterprise on a, on a shelf. And so I knew what the Enterprise was before I knew what Star Trek was. 
you know, I, I like a lot of science fiction. I was more toward like the Ridley Scott alien side of the galaxy, you know. While everyone was into Star Wars, I was thinking that. But I always had in the back of my mind, I knew that I would probably like Star Trek based on what I've heard about it. So fast forward to a few years ago, a buddy of mine who was a big Star Trek fan, we the conversation came up and he said, okay, I'm going to take you under my wing. I'm going to show you some key episodes. So first thing he did was he showed me the cage. And then from there, we went to um, Space Seed and then City on Edge of Forever. And, and then, and then from there, he was like, okay, you saw Space Seed. Now you're going to, I'm going to let you borrow, uh, Wrath of Khan. And, and so he, he kind of gave me like the bullet points of the series. And from there, I was, I was hooked. So I, I immediately bought the, uh, the 50th anniversary box set that came out. Cause I knew I was like, okay, I might not be able to get to this now, but I will get to it soon. And then I'm in the middle of that right now, actually, along with listening to your show. Awesome, man. Well, you know, for me, as far as, far as to, to be the reverse of, of my question to you, uh, the, the Outer Limits for me, you know, I, I grew up uh, with my, my parents are big sci-fi fans and stuff. And and so we'd always watch like Twilight Zone and Outer Limits. And and uh, my dad was a big Outer Limits fan. Uh, I think maybe more than the Twilight Zone. I think he, he liked Outer Limits more. So so we would they would always be like in reruns and stuff. Or, or we would always go like rent videotapes to watch certain episodes on tapes as you did back in the day because there was no streaming, okay? There were, couldn't log in to wherever, you know, and, and Hulu, for example. It's where I watched these Outer Limits episodes mm-hmm. that we're going to talk about today. There was that, and then they would, they would run on, like, you know, TNT uh, at times. So there's, I remember, I think back when I think it was like in elementary school or middle school, uh, like in the summers on TNT here in the U.S., they, they showed classic Outer Limits, like 60s episodes, Back to back with '80s Twilight Zone, which is an interesting oh, combination. Wow. I don't know. I don't know why they did that. Oh, but that, that I ended up watching a lot of Outer Limits and Twilight and '80s Twilight Zone with, in that combination back then. So uh, yeah, I don't have like the uh, encyclopedic knowledge and fandom that I do of Outer Limits like I do with the Twilight Zone. But it's interesting to me because it almost they're, they're sister shows, you know. And I I didn't realize the Outer Limits man it only ran for two seasons, right? Yeah. Which is crazy because Twilight Zone went for five. I'm like I don't, I don't know what, what what's your what's your take on that. Well, you can kind of tell because based on the shows we're covering today, you got one show from season one and then the rest are from season two. And right away, the big, the biggest difference you can tell right off the bat is the music. The opening title and the background music are completely different because um, from season one to season two, a lot of changes happened. Like the budgets were cut drastically. Um, maybe there was a falling out between uh, the network and then uh, the showrunners at the time. And so by the time the season two wrapped, there was just the damage had been done. You can tell the difference. Like it's, season two is not as good as season one. And then so based on that, they could just see a downward trajectory. So they just decided to cut bait, I'm assuming. One of the biggest, um, I'll cover this when we get there, actually, about the, uh, the background score and everything. I'll, I'll cover that when we get to the first episode from season two. Great, great. Well, you know, we can jump right into it. You know, the outer limits, right? The, the control voice. That you hear, right? Mm-hmm. Vic Parrot is the actor. Uh, he appeared on the original series three times. He was a Metron in Arena in season one, the episode with the gore and everybody. Uh, he was a Halkin. He actually appeared in the flesh in Mirror Mirror season two episode of TOS. Uh, and then he was the voice of Nomad, also a season two episode of TOS uh, called The Changeling, where he was a probe. So, uh, and a lot of him interacting with the crew and stuff. So yeah, it's, you hear the, the Outer Limits guy's <laughs> voice in the whole episode. So excellent. it's a very iconic sci-fi voice, right? Oh yeah, definitely. And I thought, you know, re- re-watching these, you know, it was, it was great because I, I, I didn't sit down and watch Outer Limits in, in a while and I'm going to now. 
because uh, I've been kind of reinvigorated with checking all these out. But I always, I, I didn't realize that the, the control voice was kind of like a Rod Sterling S. To, I know I keep comparing it to Twilight Zone, but like it, kind of the host in the episode too, slightly. You know, I thought they just came on and they said, we control the vertical, we control the horizontal, that kind of thing. And I thought that was it. But then they kind of set up and close out the episode, which is cool to have those bookends, I think. Oh, yeah, definitely. And of course, I mean, you can't mention one without mentioning the other because, I mean, it's they're so close. I mean, there was overlap in the last season of The Twilight Zone with um, The Outer Limits. And uh, that was one thing they uh, they I think they they proposed uh, Leslie Stevens to come on on screen and he sat him in like, I'm not doing that. So the control voice is it is like our own Rod Serling, but it's it's more (laughs) it's more I want to say sinister, but it's more like uh it's more like ominous. It's like, oh, it's it's a it's a warning voice, and I, I think it's great. I mean, I I think I couldn't see, I couldn't picture the outer limits with an on-screen narrator. I think for what it is, it's absolutely perfect. Yeah, as far as going back to mentioning the two, it's it's so funny because you you'll find more often than not people will mention Twilight Zone episodes or Outer Limits episodes, and they'll get they'll you know get them confused with one another. That always seems to happen, at least with my experience. So like, oh, remember that one where they were like dolls in a dollhouse and it's like oh no that's, <laughs> that's not the outer limits <laughs> well they, they even make a gag about that in twilight zone the movie mm. uh, with dan Aykroyd and al brooks are the, are the two guys and they're and they're talking about tv shows and theme songs it's like you ever watch the twilight zone and they start talking about a plot it's like no that was an outer limits no that was twilight zone no that was an outer limits and and so they are they are tied to each to each other in in that in that way but I I agree with you. I, I think the carryover between like the horizontal vertical control guy. I mean that that's such an iconic, you know, opening. And people still know that, you know. So I think carrying that guy's voice over, Vic Perrin's voice over to the episodes, it would feel weird to see that person because it's like an anonymous force controlling your TV. So I think that plays into the whole the whole vibe they're going for. You know, we are in control of the picture. It's very iconic and and uh, an immersive kind of way to watch the show. Oh yeah, definitely. And a funny anecdote about that. So me, me and a lot of my group of friends uh, back in high school and college, you know, on on holidays and stuff, and we all get big parties, people's houses and stuff. But we watched the Twilight Zone marathon on the Sci Fi Channel. Right? But there, inevitably, there would be people around that like would make fun of it or didn't really know what was going on. And one time we were watching, we were watching a uh, a Twilight Zone, and the friend of one of my friends' dads came in with him just to see what we were doing. And he comes in there, and we're watching the Twilight Zone, and he says. Oh, we control the vertical. We control the horizontal. <laughs> I'm like, sir, that's the outer limits. <laughs> so, <laughs> I had to put up my nerd hat. Oh, but yeah, it's just so definitely. funny because that's so true what we're talking about here. So, uh, but but I'm glad that I'm glad they both exist because it, it's so interesting to watch these shows now as we get into it, and and it's like watching like you know uh, lost episodes of the Twilight Zone and vice versa. Oh, if yeah. you're a huge Outer Limits fan and you haven't watched much Twilight Zone, if you watch that, it's kind of like a lost episodes of the Outer Limits. They are very similar shows. Yeah, I um one thing I like to t- I like to tell people um and uh, I apologize if anyone's listening to this who's heard me explain this before that the when by the time the Outer Limits came along, there was more like I mean there's there was definitely an urgency in the air. But if you look at Twilight Zone episodes from beginning to end, you know, Rod Serling's messages have like this air of, of hope and optimism, kind of, you know, like if we can just get our act together, we can write the shit. Um, but by the time The Outer Limits comes along, I feel like it's more like, hey, they're kind of grabbing us by the shirt collar and saying, we need to get this straight. <laughs> you know, like the whole morality of the stories they're telling. Like there's, a, there's like a, especially in the first season, at least where I'm at now in the show, 
there's this undercurrent of like the whole atomic age you know it's if we don't understand the power we're harnessing you know things can go really wrong really fast and so it's kind of like an evolution you can see the trajectory of humanity if that makes any sense you know from the 50s into the 60s and so forth and even going into star trek i'm going to touch on that too i want to mention something when we get to the the last episode that we're covering so then the first episode we're talking about here is controlled experiment it is the uh, 16th episode of the first season of the outer limits and the main reason that i zeroed in on it is because it stars grace lee whitney oh yeah in a leading role in the episode Mm -hmm. This is actually the next show I'll be covering on my show. Um, and then one thing I wanted to point out is, well, this will come as no surprise to you having seen this episode, but this was actually the least expensive episode ever of The Outer Limits. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> oh, yes. And also it was the quickest to film in just like three to four days. So, I mean, for those of you who don't know, I mean, the the story revolves around these Martians who come in and they want to study... Uh, uh, they want to see a murder in real time and understand why it is humans murder each other. Because we're the only planet where this takes place, which I think is an interesting, I guess, commentary on humanity, right? Absolutely. And if you listen to them talk, they paint humanity in such a negative light. Like yeah. <laughs> Even like their little asides are just like, oh, God, it smells here. It's, it's, it's terrible. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like we're like the, uh, we're the bad neighborhood of the, of the galaxy. And so basically we watch this... Uh, about 45 minute exchange happened backwards and forwards like multiple times. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's no surprise to me that this whole thing shot very quickly and inexpensively because they basically just reran the footage for a good couple of minutes, both in the beginning and in the end of the episode. I got to say, this one, of all the ones we watched mm-hmm. for this conversation, probably my least favorite, <laughs> but I felt like it did have the best ending. Oh, yeah. Uh, because there's like a payoff to what's going on. Because you have these these Martians. By the way, one of these Martians played by Carol O'Connor. Mm-hmm, right. Who is, who is famous from All the Family in the Heat of the Night. And he's doing like a British accent. I'm like, that, that guy is unrecognizable. Who knew? I honestly, I missed it the first go around. And I was like, who's this pleasant old man? You know, he's not even that old. And then I was like, holy crap, that's <laughs> that's Archie Bunker. <laughs> yeah, Archie Bunker. <laughs> so I was, I was like, no way. It's quite a surprise to me to realize that I, I'll, I'll say this for it it's an intellectual comedy like oh look at this like as they talk about currency mm-hmm. like they pull out a dollar bill like what is this what is this bird why does it have foliage <laughs> what why is there a pyramid with an eye and and the it's just the funny to hear the martians try to talk about this this kind of thing and talk they talk about kissing right right every chance they get is it forwards or backwards? I can't tell. <laughs> is it forward? Yes, yeah. Because part of the conceit is they have this this machine that they can like fast forward, rewind, slow down, and pause time, and they're using it for this control experiment. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they go stuff in slow motion. Sometimes they do stuff fast. Sometimes they do it in reverse. And th- I think that was the funniest part of the episode for me. Oh yeah. So they're watching these two characters kiss in a hallway, and and they're not really. They're like, is it is it forwards or backwards? I can't tell because <laughs> if you think about it, you really couldn't tell if they were kissing. But so it was more of a. It wasn't a slap your knee. This is hilarious. But it was intellectually funny, and I respected that because the Twilight Zone. Because we're gonna just keep con- comparing it's the two shows as we talk here. Understood. Right? No the worries. Twilight Zone did not do comedy well like, <laughs> if, if they did i don't know they probably did a dozen comedy episodes 
maybe two or three of them are good. Mm-hmm. But the, nothing dates more and is more cringeworthy than like of the time period comedy. Oh yeah, <laughs> and that's and that's the problem there. But I think with this, it's like oh, these are outsiders trying to understand cultural norms of mm-hmm. the world of Earth. So I think that's why it works. So like the comedy, it didn't, it wasn't hilarious, but it didn't like bother me, and I find it kind of charming. So oh yeah, definitely. And one of the funniest things too was watching the actors act in slow motion while they're <laughs> while yeah. while, while uh, uh, Diemos and um, what's the other guy's name Phobos right? exactly the the Martian moon the, the, the moons of Mars <laughs> exactly, yeah yes. so that'd be like having kid a kid named Moon right <laughs> <laughs> Zappa <laughs> um, yeah definitely. That's funny. And then the elevator scene really cracked me up with Robert Fortier just like staring off with a big smile on his face while they're like peering over his shoulder. Robert Fortier, mm-hmm. okay, who played an alien in By Any Other Name, second season episode of TOS, uh, Tomar. So he was one of the, the, the Kelvins from the Andromeda Galaxy who uh, disguises himself as a you know bipedal humanoid. And of course, I, that, that wasn't even on my radar, right? But once right. I started seeing... Once I started seeing all these familiar faces, like, okay, as I'm watching the episode, I have to go to IMDb and look up who these people are, because I'm like, and, and there he was, so I get more <laughs> right. Star Trek crossover, yeah. but, you know, I get Grace Whitney, right? She's, like, the, the reason that I kind of plucked this one to, to, to talk about, because, you know, I consider her Absolutely. part of the, the core crew of the original series, mm-hmm. uh, Janice Rand, and, you know, she doesn't have a lot to do here, but she has a lot of screen time, considering they play the same action <laughs> over and over and over and over. Right, so. she sure can fire a gun, right? <laughs> It's funny because um, when, like I said, she's like speaking in slow motion and then they get to zoom in on her face and she's like, you lying to timing. <laughs> and it's like, of course, it's slowed down. So her voice is dramatically deeper and everything. <laughs> well, I, you know, it's interesting. It, obviously, they shot uh, some of the footage in actual slow motion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but other times when the Martians are in the scene and they're on a different temporal plane or whatever their explanation is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh the actors like Gracie Whitney is just having to talk slow. Obviously she's not talking out loud, but she's mouthing her lines right, right. slowly. <laughs> just thinking about the <laughs> practicality of this production has to be amusing. Oh yeah, definitely. It's so funny. I wish it, I wish there was like behind the scenes footage we could have seen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I will say this one, probably because we're seeing the same thing over and over again. Like this one definitely could have benefited from a shorter running time. Oh yeah. Uh, because, uh, because the outer limits was an hour had an hour time slot. Mm-hmm. Twilight zone, for example, was a 30 minute time slot, except for its fourth season, uh, where it got plugged into an hour time slot and they had to kind of expand. And you really feel the weight of those episodes. Like, cause they're really like the twilight zone is a short form storytelling. Yeah. Um, there are a few good ones in season four, but most of the time they're they're long, they're boring. People, <laughs> it's a really padding, common criticism. I, you know, I didn't I didn't feel that way about any of the outer limits mm-hmm. except for this one. Oh man, it, <laughs> because what, you're seeing the same thing over. This could have been done in a good twenty two minutes. Oh I yeah. What isn't helping things is that they're playing this really loud screeching noise the entire time. <laughs> so it's yeah with, with each uh, adjustment of the of the um the machine. You just get this ear piercing just noise and you're like, okay, let's it's taking a good forty five seconds to line up the shot. But they reverse the negative. It's cool, right? <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. This is this is a a, a milestone in in tech in uh, visual effects. <laughs> yeah. Um one random fun fact is uh the Martian control computer voice is uh Leslie Stevens, the Outer Limits creator and stuff. Yeah, that's interesting you say that because in Charlie X, one of the early season one episodes of the original series, Gene Roddenberry is a voice that Captain Kirk talks to over the intercom. So ah. funny working in those creators and in, into the show. Awesome. So. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, you know, I 
an interesting twist of this episode, right? So these these Martians, they're 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 watching this 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 couple get in an argument, and the woman shoots her boyfriend for cheating on her, right. you know. And so eventually they decide they keep messing around. They keep trying to understand. Okay, well, why did they do this? And it's funny to 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 a point, and then it gets old. But it's funny to a point, <laughs> right? And if, and eventually they decide, oh, we need we need to interject. We need to insert ourselves into the experiment because we need to try better understand. And so they stop the bullet. They deflect the bullet. So she doesn't shoot the boyfriend. And then after that, the boyfriend's like, hey, you don't have to scare me. Yeah, I was seeing another girl, but it's just to make sure that we were real, baby. And she's like, really? And I'm like, okay, are you serious? Right, I know, <laughs> right? She's really that's, forgiving. Oh, yeah, definitely. I had to be sure. Trust me. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, so that is ridiculous. <laughs> Absolutely. We're in, oh, yeah, I'm like, oh, that'll really happen. And she's like, oh. You know, just what you know how they what you say, like, oh, you know how like my heart melts when you talk to me that way or something. It's just so funny. I, I had a good laugh about that one myself. And then to 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 follow it up, he proposes to her, and they're going to get married. <laughs> and then the Martian guys get in trouble because they're like, hey, you've you changed the course of human history. They're going to have a kid. That kid's going to heard about the story about how his dad didn't get shot. He's going to think he's invincible. He's going to start a nuclear war. He's going to destroy the galaxy. <laughs> and they're like, oh, man. Like, So it's it's a really, it's it's a funny kind of butterfly effect. Oh, yeah. T- tangent they go on. Uh, and, that, that, and it is funny to think like, you know, well, you see her shoot him. And then she's kind of sad about that she just shot her boyfriend. Uh-huh. So clearly she wouldn't, like, she would feel bad about that after the fact. So when they deflect the bullet, she is happy he's not dead, so they make up. So it's, I don't know, I thought that was interesting. Like, a way to, because you didn't, because you've been seeing the same scene, like, literally 30 times. <laughs> right, right. To see how it would go a little differently was very refreshing. Mm-hmm. And a, a kind of fun ending. And then the Martians find, like, a loophole around to, like, to quote-unquote fix the timeline. Yeah. And even, and even at the end, like, the Vic Perrin comes on and is like, well... If it destroys the galaxy, that's a long time from now. I was like, so what? I know. <laughs> what me- what's the message of this episode? Right. It's like, well, you know, and one thing they don't, that we didn't, they didn't really take into account. And then, uh, um, David Giscale mentions this in The Outer Limits Companion is that there's no, the, the Amos takes the, the cigarette case with him. So it's, for all we know, he still thinks that he cheated death, like miraculously, because there's no cigarette mm. case holder. So, and yeah, it just ends so, like, randomly, like, oh, yeah, well, even his tone was, like, kind of dismissive, like, well, you know, <laughs> what happens here, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, yeah, definitely, it was, this one was, I will admit, um, it's, uh, it was kind of a struggle, not a struggle, but, you know, it was my least favorite of the ones we covered. Yeah, so, there, and Grace Lee Whitney, she did fine in a role, oh, yeah. didn't have a lot to do, we'll, we'll find that. You know, some of these Star Trek actors have a lot to do. Some of them don't have so much to do. And, and even even though she had a lot of screen time, mm-hmm. it was that same scene over and over right. and over. So good to see her on The Outer Limits, though. So. so moving on to the next episode, we'll be discussing the second episode of the second season of The Outer Limits, Cold Hands, Warm Heart, starring Captain Kirk himself, William Shatner. And if there's one thing... I would do if I was William Shatner in these Twilight Zone or Out of Limits. I would not look out windows. <laughs> right? He's got bad luck with passenger windows. <laughs> yeah. He, if he's if he's on an aircraft or a spacecraft of some kind, he looks out a window, he's going to see a monster, and it's going to cause some trouble for him, isn't it? Oh, yeah, definitely. And also, one thing I noticed, too, if when he's above, just to kind of jump ahead a little bit for a second. Yeah, when he's When he's orbiting the uh, Venusian atmosphere, the the things really start to go south when he reaches 20,000 feet. 
Did you notice yes. that? Yeah. Yes, I noticed that. There's so many little things that are said here that are Twilight Zone and Star Trek-esque. But yeah, they make it a point. He's like, 20,000 feet, 20,000 feet. Even I'm like, repeated did somebody... it. <laughs> they repeated it. Yeah. I was like, it's because they were saying 40,000. I'm like, oh, that's cute. That's almost like 20,000. They're like, we're at 30,000 feet. I'm like, oh, okay. That's like the remake of Nightmare 20,000 feet. That's cool. 20,000 feet. They say it twice. Yep, I was yep. like, this has to... Did no one notice this? This has to be intentional. Absolutely. But yeah, there's so many little Star Trek connections because th- this is actually this is an episode I actually do remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, to be honest, I don't know if I had seen any of these other ones or if I had, I'd kind of forgotten them. But mm-hmm. the, being being of course the William Shatner episode, I remember him like in the blanket, like turning up the thermostat <laughs> and arguing with his wife about how he can't stay uh, warm. And I remember the like the kind of floaty Venusian creature oh, out yeah. the window. But the Project Vulcan. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> is the name of the project, <laughs> right? I mean, I come on. Oh yeah, definitely. There are three other Star Trek actors in this mm. episode. Uh, Malachi Throne, uh, who who played the voice of the Keeper in the Cage, and also played Commodore Mendez in the Menagerie. Mm. Uh, so he's uh, he's the Doctor of William Shatner's character, uh, mm. Jeff. Right, that's that's his yes. character's name. Yes, Jeff Barton. Jeff Barton. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, uh, sorry. That, that, no, that that be that's like a, a that's like a cool like military action guy named Jeff Barton. Oh yeah, like, I like that. <laughs> Brigadier General Jeff Barton. General Jeff Barton. Lawrence Montague, mm-hmm. whose last name I can never really pronounce, but uh, uh, he played Decius in Balance of Terror in season one, one of the Romulans. And he also played Stan in season two of Mock Time. He was also on the short list to replace Leonard Nimoy as Spock, because oh. Leonard ne- there were some contract negotiations going on in the early, uh, uh, well, between season one and two mm-hmm. of the original series. And uh, Lawrence M, as I'll refer to him as, because I don't want to mispronounce his name again, <laughs> he he was going to be the next Spock. Oh, wow. And they had signed a contract and everything, and they said, okay, uh, you're either going to be Spock, but if Leonard Nimoy does come back, you get guaranteed a guest spot. Mm-hmm. So that's why he's in a mock time. <laughs> All <laughs> and, right. <laughs> and he had already had the ears uh, from Balance of Terror, so that's why he was on the short list. We're like, okay, he can do the makeup. He looks good in the makeup. Great. So, uh, And he's, just, he's one of the technicians. I think he's the first technician in uh, Jeff Barton's office uh, mm-hmm. when they're like when he's a- asking him about like the capsule and all that stuff because I'm like that guy looks familiar and of course when I did my research it was oh it's it's Todd nice and then I, I didn't notice this one at all I, I just saw it on IMDb uh, but but uh, James Sicking uh, who played uh, Captain Styles in Star Trek Three oh. he was also one of the technicians in the in Project Vulcan somewhere so I'm <laughs> I'm sure he looked very different you know 20 years before Star Trek Three but uh, but lot lots of Star Trek people all around oh yeah. Uh, when Jeff Barton's talking to his wife about like why he's an astronaut, he's like, I always thought I would go see new worlds, new life. I was like, are you kidding? <laughs> I'm so glad like, you mentioned that. I remember all that too. I'm like, oh man, that's such a, that's such a, like a Shatner, like a quote unquote, like a stereotypical like Shatner delivery. I was like, oh, that's so great. Well, it's funny because when they when they recast the captain on TOS, you know, Shatner was on their on their radar, you mm-hmm. know, and because of his appearances in Twilight Zone and Other Limits, it's like did they like watch this and say, oh, that's good, like, write that down, like because of course they recorded the Space the Final Frontier mm-hmm. intro long after they cast Shatner. I mean, that's not in the original pilot for Where No Man Has Gone Before. It's mm-hmm. just it's just music. There's there's no intro. They recorded that like in like nine episodes into production on TOS. So I wonder if they're like that's good, write that down. <laughs> The first thing I wrote in my notes was like, "Geez, Shatner can pull off a military uniform." You know, he's he's so he's like believable. As like you can see, like, oh wow, this guy exudes confidence. Make that man captain, you know? Right, and then you know the um the opening scene there, 
right? Like, yeah. there's, like, a parade. Would there really be, a, like, a parade like that for a guy who, like, circled Venus? I mean, I know the 60s, we were all about space. Oh, but yeah, it does seem yeah. a little extravagant. Oh, definitely. Today, there would be no funding for that. He'd, <laughs> he'd come home to, like, you know, his wife just would kind of give him a, a warm embrace, no pun intended. <laughs> but, yeah, I know. It's, it's, like, super extravagant. It's his own ticker tape parade and everything. Mm-hmm. And a good use of stock footage that kind of mix with their new. Obviously, they didn't, you know, do a real parade during <laughs> downtime square. But I thought, you know, using the stock footage of whatever parade that was, like oh, yeah. World War II victory parade mm-hmm, or whatever, for sure. and then cutting to a tight shot of Shatner like waving with confetti everywhere. I thought that was pretty effective. And I, I don't know. You, you tell me, Victor. Did, did, did the Outer Limits have a bigger budget in the Twilight Zone? Because it seemed like it did. I feel like the thing about it, and here's the thing that's. The you watch the Twilight Zone and it feels very like stage play-ish. Like you feel mm-hmm. like you know you're on a set, mm-hmm. you're watching actors perform on like a stage. Whereas Outer Limits, part of the Outer Limits, which I absolutely love, is that you have the talent of um Conrad Hall. He's a cinematographer. He's uh he won awards, of course. He worked on American Beauty later on. Um his he has he's got this like noirish kind of lighting vibe, and then so he he can make anything look epic. That Oh, in a, in addition to uh, there's like a Gerd Oswald who does the expanding human actually, um his his direction gives it a big like cinematic feel in my opinion. So maybe like the the budget might not have been bigger, but it certainly looked you got the most out of what you had visually from yeah. Conrad Hall and uh, Gerd Oswald who ended up doing the, a good number of episodes. So I feel like. I mean, don't get me wrong, they use a lot of stock footage too. And <laughs> But yeah, I, I feel like maybe the budget wasn't so big, but we just got, like, we made best use of what we had. We being the Outer Limits, and of course I have nothing to do with the show. <laughs> right, no, I yeah. you, you represent the Outer Limits in this conversation. I follow you. Know? Yeah. I, no, I, I, was, I was surprised, because the, uh, I don't know, the general consensus is like, oh, Outer Limits, you know, I was like, Monster of the Week kind of thing, but Twilight Zone, man, that was art. And I'm like, yeah, no, I agree. I love the Twilight Zone. One of my top five favorite shows of all time, mm-hmm. but let's not fool ourselves. I think you said it perfectly. It is kind of like a stage play, you know, like the, the very basic sets, very basic environments, but the Outer Limits, like, the, I don't know, they found a way. I was just, I was very impressed with a lot of the visuals here, especially considering the, the time the time period. But uh, speaking of the visuals, well, let's talk about the, the Venusians. Like, <laughs> what, what's, what's, what's going on here? <laughs> oh, man. Oh man, if you want it, oh, it does not age well. My wife walked in and she's like, "What the heck are you watching?" <laughs> and of course, you hear the, the theremin in the background going, and it's like, "Oh man, they filmed some of that underwater too to give it that weird slow motiony kind of deal." Well, <laughs> it's interesting. I, you know, it, it's kind of cheesy. It looks like when it gets up close, right? Mm-hmm. If they would have kept it further away, like because Venus is a gaseous planet, mm-hmm. right? So aliens that live there would kind of be floating around and. You know, I, I like the idea of what they were going for, mm-hmm. uh, but like they should have known, like just don't get don't get too close right, right. to the oh, window, especially right? Especially don't use like a, a sock puppet kind of thing. <laughs> it, was like, it was like something like, it was like a like a like a toy you'd give your dog almost. <laughs> yeah. Well, so so what 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 happens in this episode to him? Because like he gets too close to Venus. It's you know I'm still trying to figure that out myself, man. <laughs> it's these, these season two episodes, man. <laughs> no, he gets too close, and then what I feel like. Uh, the atmosphere kind of just, I don't know I feel like he gets contaminated somehow like yeah it, doesn't he, he kind of mentions like doesn't he mention like a like a the structural integrity of this ship at one point later on if I remember yeah right. and they're like oh it's airtight yeah yeah so, but but he went out of contact with them for a few minutes mm-hmm. and that must have been when it happened of course and, of course <laughs> um 
that is, yeah, they never really explain it. Like, like what's wrong with like he doesn't get infected by right, anything. Just, you think just... it's something like that, but when he gets back, you know, he he starts to. I mean, this is what I because this is unsettling because because like you you put yourself in these situations of this character. Like, you went to a weird place, you come back, your biology's getting real messed up. Like, you can't stay warm, and that's that's really creepy because you can I don't know you can relate to that. You can feel like when you're sick and how you feel, and it just keeps escalating and escalating. I like how subtle it is at first. Like he's wearing a jacket mm-hmm. and like. Like hot coffee isn't like not hot to him. He goes in the steam room, <laughs> right, you know, right. cranks it up to like two hundred, and he's like not sweating, and everyone else is like, die. like this is this is creepy stuff. And he and then he starts to kind of mutate, like his hands start oh, yeah. mutating into like Venusian hands, and mm-hmm. it's unsettling. And I think like the first two thirds of this episode are, are really strong. Oh yeah. Uh, I also I also like the relationship between him and his wife. Oh, yeah. That she she has like equal footing with him in the, in this whole debate, and I think that's a very strong thing to see in these uh, you know sixties TV shows. Absolutely, there's especially in um, season one. There's a whole lot of you know that sixties show kind of you know uh, marriage dynamic going on. So this is definitely a breath a breath of fresh air. You can you can feel, you can see the love between them. She can tell, and also um, she she appeared also and his wife appeared in a in a season one episode I believe three the architects of fear she was really good in that one too so it was good to see her back in the show um she's she's very warm and so to see her back and with Shatner it's it was a believable dynamic so and like you're right it's good to see that in sixties television she had a warm heart right? <laughs> oh yeah definitely she definitely well, had a warm heart. and ultimately the power of love. Is mm-hmm. what saves him. Y- yeah, that's yeah. The, and that's the thing. It, it seems, and it's so like abrupt. It seems it's like, it, like yes. And he's like, we're gonna get our funding. Oh, sweating. <laughs> you know, well, like, yeah, I didn't understand. Like they're like, we, your your white blood cell count is too high. You have no red blood cells yet left. We have to do a blood transfusion. I was like, okay. Did they give him a transfusion when he was in that pod? I guess. Right. There's. <laughs> Yeah, this, it seems like they do one. They mention one test, and then they do a, a whole other test, and then all of a sudden he's like, "Oh, your body temperature is regulating. You're obviously you're perspiring, so you must be on the upswing." And you're like, "Okay." <laughs> so I guess his hands are gonna go back to normal. Like right? I, I, I don't know. Like I just I, I felt it was very strong for two thirds of it, and like you said, like the editing is weird. Like we jump ahead, like. Like there's certain scenes I feel like we should have seen, but we didn't, and they're talking mm-hmm. about things that happened. Like, cause he kind of goes crazy at home and mm-hmm. burns all his notes. So I thought, oh, that's cool. Like, I thought it was gonna be like, oh, stay away from Venus kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I thought that's where they were going, but then that that a hundred percent is thrown out the window. Yeah, he he gives his presentation. They get the fun. they're all excited about going to Venus. Like, well, hold on, if you all go to Venus, this is all gonna happen to you, right? right. Exactly. Bad. We're left with like we saw what well, we we the audience saw what happened when <laughs> when one person just skimmed the surface of the planet. Yeah. So, oh, now we're going to send many more people there. So, yeah, you're right. It leaves a lot of questions unanswered. The whole hand thing is never really addressed further. He just kind of, oh, you know, spilled hot coffee on my hands. <laughs> or soup gonna, it was, soup. I, I thought they would take the gloves off and his hands would be normal. Like, I, yeah. I, I'm glad it had a happy ending because if it didn't, it'd be kind of tragic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but I, and I've said this about Twilight Zone episodes before. Like, you know, time enough at last, mm-hmm. right? The difference between like a run of the mill Twilight Zone episode and like a all time classic is the tragic ending. I think uh, because if like if time enough at last he found the library and that was the end, you're like, oh well, good for him. He found the library. He can read now, <laughs> yeah. and you don't think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. But you remember that episode because oh no, 
he found the library, but then his glasses broke. That's all. Oh, that's tragic. You know. Oh yeah. And 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 that's what sticks with you. And in this episode, right? Mm-hmm. Although you're happy, there's a happy ending. If he was like, he was an explorer, and he always pushed the limits, and the limits pushed too far, and now he's mutated, and he's a monster now. That's exactly. tragic. And that would have stuck with you. Yeah, exactly. If he, yeah, I honestly believe if he had like, transformed into like a Venusian, and then ultimately he, you know, maybe sacrificed himself or did something to where, you know, like, then it would kind of be like a retread of the um, Architects of Fear, which followed a similar path, but this was like man-made instead of Venusian-induced. Um, but if he had transformed into a Venusian and then somehow like gave his life or met an end and then, you know, died in his wife's arms, that would, that would, I can totally see that just being absolute classic or memorable more so than it, than this one. Yeah. But Shatner is great. Shatner is Shatner. Oh, absolutely. Right? I mean, he, had, he, had, he even has another line like, you're a doctor. Like he tells his doctor, <laughs> I'm like, that is so original series. Oh, love it. Like, <laughs> Like if you, I'm telling you guys, like uh-huh. if you have not seen this episode, you will see Star Trek all over it. So I, I highly recommend it. I mean, being the Shatner and Kirk fan I am, this is probably the most enjoyable episode to me. Uh, <laughs> even though I felt it was a little bit of an anticlimax, it's still very much enjoyable, and it's fun to see that the pre-Kirk Shatner like being a proto-Kirk, basically. Oh yeah, definitely. Seek out that scene where he's talking about his journey to the space program. You know, as a boy, you know <laughs> that monologue alone is absolutely brilliant. Definitely, like, like that can said. be Captain Kirk's origin story. <laughs> exactly, monologue, you're right. <laughs> so this is the second season of The Outer Limits now. You mentioned the openings and things. Now, in the first season, did they always show a scene, like a random scene from the middle of the episode and put it at the beginning? And then they stopped that in the second season? Because as we transition from this one into the next two we talk about, none of those are like in media res, as they say. Uh, like the, the first, and I remember other Outer Limits episodes that I remember, like there was always like a random scene from later in the episode <laughs> at the beginning. And th- that's what happened. Uh, that's what happened in controlled experiment. Cause that was first season. So mm-hmm. is that something they changed between seasons or was that just random or what, what's the story on how the cold opens of the episode, I guess. Yeah. Um, the first episode of the series in general didn't ha- didn't feature that cold open. It wasn't until I believe the third episode where they put that that little teaser to kind of draw you in, like, oh, stuff's going to happen. I better stay tuned. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, because, I mean, it can be kind of slow moving, I guess, the network thought uh, to set up. So they're like, oh, hang tight. You're going to get a monster. Usually, it'll, you know, some dramatic event will happen. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And season two, they, they seems like they did drop it all together because at that point, like I said, you know, the writing was on the wall. They're just like, okay, let's just get this done and get it out. Um, Speaking, if I can just touch on the... Uh, the differences between season one and two real quick, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Um, you'll notice the the music is dramatically different from the, the opening theme. Season one has Dominic Frontieri. And it's going back to what I said, how the uh, Outer Limits has this presentation to it that felt epic. Underlining the beautiful direction, gorgeous cinematography is the music of Dominic Frontieri. And it feels like a, a character in and of itself. I mean... To go from that, like so many memorable themes in that show are attached to Frontieri cues. And then I know you know that in Star Trek where the difference to when they change a composer. Mm-hmm. I, I think you said it, it became wallpaper or something at one point. Yeah, when they get to the next generation era, especially, yeah, it's the, the music is, is less of a character than it was in early TNG and, of course, in TOS. Right. And so in season two, they took on Harry Lubin, who um, does more like 
I don't want to say experimental, but he uses the theremin more. And I don't mind it. And to be honest, there's a cool cue in the Venusian underlying theme was great when going back to the Cold Heart Warm Hands. Um, and then in Expanding Human, when we see the autopsy scene, there's a really cool like a theremin uh, theme underneath that I think is really cool. But ultimately, it's it, it leaves something to be desired musically. Like, I feel like a big key of the of the show is missing in season two. Yeah, sorry to go off on that little rant there. <laughs> it's all interesting, and it informs the whole feeling of the whole thing. And you know, moving on to the the next episode, the season two, episode four, Expanding Human. This episode I picked out because it stars James Do It, you know, and Scotty, right? And <laughs> I got I gotta say, it's so interesting to see him not use the Scottish accent, right? Right, right, and it, it's it's weird because his. His real voice is so close to his Scottish, his Scotty voice. <laughs> I noticed that. I was like, I'm like, oh, all he needs to do is like roll an R, and then you're like, oh crap, it's Scotty. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's so true. Because I'm like, it's it's so similar. I'm like, yeah. is it? I'm, is he doing the Scottish accent? You realize how you realize how little effort is put into his Scottish accent right, yes. when he talks in his normal voice. <laughs> and he he's he's got a good presence on screen too. Like he was a good uh, he was a good lieutenant. Like he just yeah. Another guy who looks good in a suit, you know, you're like, oh, wow. He has a lot more to do in this episode than he did in his Twilight Zone episode that we talked about. He was like mm-hmm. in a couple scenes in that. Uh, he isn't, he doesn't have a lot to do in this one, but but he is an ever-present mm-hmm. uh, character. I mean, he's at the, near the beginning, he plays with the climax as well. So it was good to see him because once he kind, of, he kind of fell off the episode, like halfway through, I was like, oh, that's, I guess that's probably it for Scotty. <laughs> right. Then he shows up at the end. It's like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but surprising, surprising to me was that the, the main two characters of this episode, they are Star Trek guest stars. So we have mm-hmm. uh, Skip Homier, who who has a, a two-time Star Trek guest star. He played Melikon in Patterns of Force. He's the guy that took over the Nazi planet from uh, John Gill, the historian, and kind of propped him up as a, uh, as a, as a figurehead, but, but was calling all the shots. Uh, and then he played Dr. Severin in a season three episode, The Way to Eden. I had no idea that was the same guy. Like, <laughs> I saw Star Trek fan fail for me. I, I was like, wow, okay. And and he's he's really good in this episode. It kind of revolves around him. Yeah. And then his brother is Keith Andes. And and he played Akuda in season two episode, The Apple, the voice of Val, right? Um, so <laughs> because I'm looking at this guy, I'm like, he looks so familiar. And I'm like, of course, it's him. And they're brothers in this episode. And they're and then just completely as a side, you have people. Uh, Peter Durie, who played mm-hmm. Jose Tyler in The Cage and the Menagerie, and he's a college student in this. So I was like, <laughs> right. stop with the Star Trek. It's everywhere. I know. It goes back to, I think you mentioned it in the in your uh, episode with Tom. I was just, everyone just appeared in everything back then. You know, every, like there was a job. Hey, there's an opening. I'll, I'll, I'll you know, I'll audition for that. So there's so much Star Trek all over this the Outer Limits. I didn't realize. And Speaking of to kind of jump back on what we were talking about with the cold opens and stuff, this one... Right, I was like, "Oh, is this, is this a scene from the middle of the episode?" Because it really feels that way. It's like you have a guy breaking into a lab at night. I'm like, "Oh, well, this is going to be later in the episode." Clearly, I'm like, "No, it wasn't." So it's, I'm trying to get used to which ones are, you know, flash forwards and which ones aren't. Right. But I, I think it was effective to kind of like this story, right? I think it was a more effective way to tell it this way, where you're kind of like in the action already. Yes, definitely. If, because they were doing like LSD experiments, and basically what they were doing. I don't know if you've seen the uh, the William Hurt movie Altered States oh, uh, yeah, from the eighties. Like, so that that's like a guy who's experiments with psychedelics and tries to open up like his mind and abilities. And so this is like a you know a nineteen sixties TV version of that same kind of idea. 
Uh, and so, like, we jump ahead, like, way after this has been shut down and all these things. And then we get basically kind of like a Dr. Jackal and Mr. Hyde story. And I thought it was really effective. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's And he, he sells it, too. He's just, you can tell, you can see the regret in his face when he pulls out the poker chip. He's like, what is this? Mean? You know, it's, it's really great. And um, I also love how the, uh, to the expanded cheekbones you know <laughs> it's like well it's, yeah I, I thought that was good makeup like it I wasn't have. it was effect it was creepy but it wasn't cheesy mm-hmm. and for a show which is like notorious for like cheesy monsters and stuff right, i think right. this was a real effective makeup job yeah so. definitely um it's it, it's it's funny because um there's there's another episode i'm sorry i keep going back to previous episodes um where uh this person has his consciousness expanded as well but his his frontal lobe gets bigger so I thought oh, it was, okay. This is this is the sixth finger. Yes, right? yes, exactly. Okay, I thought I'm like, didn't they do this episode already? <laughs> right, right. Except this one was more as drug induced instead of yeah, instead of a machine. Uh-huh. So I was like, okay, you know, no problem. We'll, we'll see where they go with this. But like you said, it was so effective, and um, just like the kind of emphasis on the sides of his temples and then the his cheekbones, and I think they even made a, made a pat at his shoulders a little bit. He was a very imposing figure. They made him quite you know, intimidating. Yeah, just just for a guy in a suit. I mean, he was you know, you don't want to mess with this guy. And <laughs> the, the the reveal, the, the gradual reveal of like this guy because you couldn't really I, I had my suspicions, right? Cuz when you see the opening scene, you don't know any of the characters. He looks a little different like is that the same guy? I don't right. know. Uh but he doesn't know. It, it's a true Dr. Jackal Mr. Hyde thing cuz he proposes a theory. He's like, "Oh, well there was some guy that held up a uh, a car and then it he was at a casino mm-hmm. and blah 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 and then he goes home and he looks in his uh, he's out of cigarettes or something so then he goes and looks in a coat and he has poker chips and like oh he was the guy and you right. you kind of realize it when he realizes it and i think that was very effective and and also good on them for plot holes right because you see him kill this night watchman at the at the opening mm-hmm. and then throughout the episode he doesn't kill anyone he just he uses his mind powers to kind of jedi mind trick them like i was never here right yeah yeah and then at the end when he's talking to his brother he's like you killed that guy he's like oh well i didn't know how my hypnosis worked then I was like, that's <laughs> very smart yeah definitely. i expected them to just i expected them to just ignore that and they care they picked up on it same here yeah definitely points for sewing up that loose end right there i was like oh dude no way great and also it's what's funny is i'm saying how did he like I guess he, if I feel like you don't see him choke anybody out, but you, you just hear them go like, Ugh! and it's so it's like does he hit their lungs and all the air comes out and they just suffocate or <laughs> it's one well, of the it's like the force right it's like yeah. he's like Darth Vader first choking him right? <laughs> exactly you're right you're right <laughs> he he stopped his lungs from working mm-hmm. but and then also what, what kind of carries this is that he's not just like a monster like killing people for no reason right he's he's expanding his mind he has awareness right mm-hmm. and he's stopping people that would be in the way of their research you know like there's a guy that's going to cut funding he's like well i'm going to kill that guy you know right. and and he's and he's explaining to his brother you know like oh well you know that's uh, this is this is inconsequential in the greater good of humanity and i'm like this his morals are completely out of whack but you th- he's not living on the same plane as we are anymore so I, I think they really sell like his entire worldview is completely different than what a normal person's would be absolutely yeah he's got his he's got his goal and he's going to reach that and everything else is like trivial we're basically like ants to him kind of we're like we just need to get on the level and everything else will be exterminated where it's like oh thousands oh don't worry you know we'll have other people to do that for us we won't do all the heavy lifting so to speak now, and part of the climax is he's trying to get his brother to partake in this formula with him, mm-hmm. and and he gives him the formula, but it, like it doesn't kick in in time, so he gives him some more, <laughs> right. I guess. See, and then so that that was weak to me. What, explain this to me, Victor. Oh man, I, 
I feel like he spent more time describing the taste than why he was doing, you know? It's a, it's a cucumber. I can't quite figure out why yet. I'm like, what? Is this going to be important? I don't I, know. I thought that was so funny that he was like, I can't explain why, but it tastes like cucumber. I'm like, all right, that's that's cool. <laughs> we know that. And then it's we see a trend here where, like, it's, that starts off really good, but then toward the third act, it kind of falls off, no? I mean, at least right here, you know, you're, you're like, okay, why isn't it working or what's taking so long? He doesn't really explain anything really after that. He's just kind of like... Yeah, he's like, did he switch it? No, because he would have known. It's right. just convenient for the plot, you know? And, right, right. We're just prolonging it so we can ease up the tension. Maybe people come. Well, I think, you know, with these, it, it's the problem is not they go too long. I think the proper length, which is what they do with that climax is just disappointing. I don't know what, it, what else they would have done. But, right, right, yeah. Uh, because, they, because they shoot him, and he's mm-hmm. like, I don't bleed. And then they go outside... Like he he holds uh, Scotty and his brother hostage. Yeah. Um. And then he turns back into his normal self, and then of course dies because he's been shot. But yeah. It's like why did he turn back? Like I, he, there was no catalyst for this, right? Right. And you think he'd be aware of how long it takes to switch back? Yeah. You think he'd be like, hey, I've only got so much time before I switch back. I better, you know, there'd be a sense of urgency at least. But we got none of that. It just happened out of nowhere. And then he would he would mention like, oh, it's. I'm requiring less and less of this, I think, right? He says he mentions that his dosage is is uh less he's less dependent on dose now, right? He mentions something like that. And then so we're thinking that he has a better understanding of what's happening to him, but he, there's no sense of like I'm going to change back soon. I just got shot. There's going to be, you know, something's going to happen. It just happens out of nowhere and it it feels like we just kind of like okay, we got to start wrapping things up now and <laughs> That's the way it feels toward the end. Well, then, I mean, it's it's tragic because the guy kind of got in over his head with the drug. It's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That's what it is, right? So you feel bad for him, but you're glad that the evil side is dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, don't forget, he gave the brother the toxin, right? Right. And then you see the brother burn that at the end, and you're mm-hmm. like, oh, I know, what, I know what they're going to do. Like, he's still going to be the guy, right? But then mm-hmm. they, they completely squander that because the brother's like, oh, well, I better get to a hospital. I feel that formula coming on. <laughs> And that's right. the end. I was like, yeah, and then that's the end. Like pan up, and we're done. <laughs> Have like, you people watched a horror movie before? You're supposed to. Everything's supposed to be fine. Everybody leaves, and then the brother turns into the expanded man or whatever. And you're like, oh my god, what a twist! And exactly. that's how you're supposed to end it, right? Yes, so obvious. Oh, definitely. They should have carted the body away, and then as he's wrapping up his statement, he turns to the camera and he's got the big cheekbones. How great would that have been, huh? But that's the weaker part for me. I think uh, of all the episodes, like consistently, this was like the most interesting and really good right again up until the climax which is i go back to the first one we talked about uh, the controlled experiment i was like well that was pretty lame i think but the end was kind of clever right right (laughs) it's like the inverse of that finally move on to the last episode we'll be talking about uh i robot the ninth episode of the second season of the outer limits and this one stars leonard nimoy and uh leonard nimoy uh his episode of twilight zone quality of mercy he was a very small supporting role he had like five lines or something right and in this one, he has a bigger role, like at the beginning and at the end. But through the bulk of the episode, he's just watching this trial take place, which is basically Measure of a Man from The Next Generation. <laughs> so perhaps Melinda Snodgrass watched this episode of The Outer Limits before she wrote that episode. But but iRobot, <laughs> it's not based off the Isaac Asimov story. 
Hmm. which everybody assumes, which they made a movie out of with Will Smith, which is questionable. <laughs> right, uh, right, right. At least at least <laughs> as far as being connected to the original. I know it's a quote-unquote cheesy-looking robot, but I thought the robot design was pretty good, like with the, the glowing mouth and it opens. And yeah. I don't know, I for a 1960s robot, this was reminding me kind of like Gort from The Day the Earth Stood Still. <laughs> right. So that's the vibe I got, and I, I thought it was effective. Oh, yeah, definitely. They hide, they hid the, the seams really well. If you, if yeah, you notice. those seams. Yeah, exactly. It's it's so cool, and the the way that they articulated the mouth with and lit up his mouth as he spoke, I thought that was great. But yeah, the, the design was great. I, I really loved it too, and the humanoid face, the it's, it looked just Adam looked sad, kind of, especially when you watch him in the courtroom proceedings. He had like a just, just tragic look on his face. That was a great design. Yeah, and it is it's very Frankenstein beginning, mm-hmm. right? Because this is another one I thought, oh, well, this is clearly from the middle of the episode, right? <laughs> they're chasing the, they're chasing the robot. And it right. actually, it kind of is, but kind of isn't because it's a flashback later on and all that. But I think, oh, we're going to see what led to this at some point. But that turns out to be the crux of the whole episode because exactly. you see a robot being chased by townspeople. There's literally someone with a pitchfork. <laughs> right, so right. And I'm like, this is, he runs across a little girl near water. I was like, this is Frankenstein. Exactly. Come on. Exactly, yeah. But it didn't bother me because they brought up Frankenstein in the episode. So I'm like, all right. <laughs> Yes. You know what you're ripping off, so that's fine, right? Exactly. As long as we acknowledge it, it's okay. <laughs> but it, it it it's ahead of its time in the whole like artificial intelligence. Like this is, you know, I'm joking about the Measure of Man next generation episode where Data's been on trial for his humanity. Like that's basically what happens with this. And and Litter Nimoy, he's a reporter that kind of like stirs things along. He was apparently old friends with this defense attorney. And and so so we have Litter Nimoy, right? And and we have the niece of the doctor who has died. And the robot, Adam, is, is blamed for the death of his creator. And uh, that niece is played by Mariana Hill, who plays Dr. Helen Noel from Dagger <laughs> of the Mind. First season episode, because I was like, she looks familiar. Who is she? And I'm like, she's in Dagger of the Mind. <laughs> so, of course. <laughs> but see, her and Leonard Nimoy spend most of the episodes just sitting in the courtroom watching, so they don't mm-hmm. really play much, uh, much of a role. Uh, but John Hoyt, the original doctor from The Cage. Again, we have... Captain Pike's whole crew is in the Outer Limits. <laughs> he is one of the uh, the robo- robotic experts, I guess they call it the stand, right? It's so funny. I think we we got at least one or two in each episode we covered, right? <laughs> yeah. Like there's, there's there's seriously like three or four Star Trek people in each one of these episodes. Yes, definitely. And one thing that was so weird for me to see, not it was like it took me a, a while to get used to, was how loose Leonard Nimoy was. <laughs> you know, it like feels the, wrong, doesn't it? Yeah, it feels yeah, wrong. It, it does. I'm like, hey, what, what's going on here? Because his like arms are kind of swinging. He's like, hey, there's a bag of bolts over here. <laughs> it's like, whoa, what's going on? I'm, I'm used to the stern, stiff, you know, Spock. Yeah, that's what's interesting because when you watch Shatner, I mean, and this is a strength and a weakness of Shatner. He's always Shatner. So you're like, oh, well, yeah, that's Kirk, right? But you see these other guys, you're like, well, that's not Spock. Well, of course, it's not Spock because it's a different character. Right, right. Yeah, th- this episode, it was it was interesting. The flashbacks, the, the the fear of people, the different perspectives. You know, this reminds me of actually a line from Controlled Experiment, mm-hmm. right? There's a line about the Martians or the, the one has been on the Martians been on Earth longer than the other one. He's like, mm. these are what you call innocent bystanders. It's a tradition. <laughs> they they all see something and, and, and tell a different story of how it happened. It's <laughs> like that's that's really smart commentary on like the human race, right? Definitely. But that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing the robots' perspective on things. We're seeing the the townspeople's perspective. And I, you know, honestly, I was like, I don't know that this robot killed him by accident, right? I mean, I really thought that might have been the case up until the end mm-hmm. because the, because the the scientist wants to put him in a box and the robot's like, I don't want to go in there. Right. He's like, <laughs> I'm not going in there. And so you're like, oh wait. Maybe something did happen. You know, it plans, plans, uh, plants that seed of doubt in there. It, it does, because I think it would have been very easy to either be in like 100% on Adam's side the whole time 
or a hundred percent on the townspeople the whole time. And I think there was enough ambiguity, right? We're like, well, because they, they turn off his like his moral compass and then he like trashes the courtroom. Oh yeah. And I'm he, like, why did you do that? Right. It's like, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> what are you doing? Also the, the prosecuting attorney, he looks a lot like Robert Stack from Unsolved Mysteries. Was that just me? <laughs> now that you mentioned it, you're right. I have to rewatch that. <laughs> I, I looked at it. I'm like, what have I seen this guy in anything? Apparently I haven't. He has just one of he has one of those like classic sixties faces, you know, because Robert yes. Stack was in the untouchables and all that. Right. So um but anyway, he's very sixties guy and he makes some valid points, I think. You know, even at the end, he's like it, it comes down to like, look, it's not about this robot, it's about humanity and the guy says, You know what? You're right. Adam didn't kill him. We did by turning on the switch to Adam. I'm like, okay, they're actually going there with this conversation. I thought this was interesting. Exactly. And this is this is what I wanted to kind of talk about in the beginning of this episode. He raises such a great point because we get the viewpoint that society isn't ready for advanced technology. You know, like you said, we, we flipped the switch on Adam. We kind of brought it on ourselves. We, we don't have what it takes to master destructive machinery at this point in our evolution. So, of course, this is a parable to nuclear weapons and et cetera. And um, what's funny when you think about it, it kind of a lot of things like media in that time, at least to me, everything was doom and gloom. And you look forward, you know, it's dystopia and it's, you know, we're, we're going to doom ourselves it's only a matter of time before we're just smoldering debris on, an, on the planet's surface. But I'm like, dude, this is like Star Trek's two years away from happening. And so that's. You get the complete opposite vision, which I thought was pretty cool. I, I was like, "Hey, you know, it, while we're like we're knee deep in this dystopian look of the future, you know, Gene Roddenberry had this vision of like, hey, you know what? It's not all going to be bad. We're gonna we're gonna go on from here, and we're gonna we're gonna evolve beyond that." And then he paints a more optimistic vision of the future, which I which really resonates with me when I watch Star Trek, the original series, of course, and the Next Generation, of course. Well, and that's what sets Star Trek apart from most science fiction. You know, the, the doom and gloom, the Terminator, the Matrix, all those <laughs> things. And speaking of Terminator, right? Mm -hmm. Like the the end, like monologue in this episode. Because I recently rewatched Terminator Two of for course. another podcast that I do, and I was like, "This is the end monologue of Terminator 2. because I it's like <laughs> I thought the exact same thing. I'm like, dude, if a machine, a Terminator, can learn the value of human life. Maybe we can too. I'm like that is a paraphrase of this episode, The Outer Limits. Now, now, if everyone remembers that your term, recall your Terminator trivia, my friends. Mm -hmm. um, Harlan Ellison sued James Cameron because he <laughs> felt like he ripped off two episodes of The Outer Limits: A Demon with a Glass Hand and Soldier. Exactly. And I'm and like I don't know. I he didn't write this episode, but whoever did write this episode should have sued James Cameron for Terminator right. too. Right. Maybe because it sacrifices himself for a kid at the end. Exactly. And how crazy. He throws the heck out of that kid, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like that would have killed, but he doesn't know his own strength. It's, it's course, established in the course. episode. So. Yes. If you look closely, you can see two hands reach out to catch the girl, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I uh, uh, I was a little like, oh, wow, they convicted him. Like, they're going to destroy the robot. Wow. Like, but, but they subvert that even, even further by the robot sacrificing himself, getting mm -hmm. hit by a truck and saving the girl. The girl, who, by the way, is probably the weakest part of the episode, but a crucial part of the episode because yeah. she's like, it's, why are you afraid of the robot? And then you run towards it into right. the street. That makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, and plus, he's the one. He's the one who hurt me. I'm like, yeah, we know. Like, I don't know. Like, kid actors, right? What are you going to do? Of course. Of course, he runs center street, you know, to be the spot. Right. <laughs> but, but, but it's it's tragic because he uh, 
you know, th- this girl doesn't even know that he that he saved her life, you know, and, and that's and that's why he dies. But uh, but I did like Leonard Nimoy's last line of the episode because the, the the defense attorney is like, well, they asked at the end of that then, and Leonard Nimoy says, no, it's just the beginning, and it's true because no. it's like this is this is going to start the conversation about artificial intelligence and blah blah blah. But there got so many vibes here. Yeah. And like, and, and this is just as foundational for science fiction as the Twilight Zone. It really mm-hmm. is. So I, I feel like the Outer Limits. You know, I, I'm one of those people. Like, oh, that's like the little brother of the Twilight Zone, right? No, <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's right up there with it, man. I think it gets uh, it gets lost in the shuffle of talking about the great TV shows of the past, right? Of course, it gets it, the fact that they're both black and white, and they both kind of have a morality tale or a, or a twist at the end. Kind of, they just get lumped together. And of course, Twilight Zone's the the taller, more attractive uh, <laughs> brother of of the two. Um, so yeah, what's what's interesting, or what I find great is they actually remade this episode in the '90s revival. And in that episode, Leonard Nimoy plays the role of the attorney, so he's got way more screen time. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it's it's actually very good. I I highly recommend it. I dare I say I prefer it to this one. They're they're pretty much neck and neck. It's so he's so great in that in that episode. I, I can't recommend it enough. And it, it spoiler alert follows the same path. But that was actually the first Outer Limits episode I remember ever watching was the remake of iRobot in in my youth. <laughs> so I was yeah I was taken back by them. Like man, it's that was such a good like you said such a jumping off point for science fiction. So to retell that story and to see that at a young age, you know, it, it kind of planted the seeds for my interest in the genre, among other things. But yeah, that, I I can't recommend it enough. If you see it, I mean, if you ever get a chance, Iron Robot from the remake. I mean, from the revival series. That's cool, man. And, and you know, since you brought it up, what are your thoughts on the '90s Outer Limits? Because for for me, it's it's so different than the original, and a lot of it, um, I don't know I'm, the best way to say this. Like, it's a lot of mature content. Yeah. <laughs> which I was like, and because I was younger when I came across, I was like, this is this makes me uncomfortable. Like, you know, and I, <laughs> the stories and the they decided to tell and the way they presented them, like it just, it was unsettling to me. And I guess that's kind of the point, but do you get where I'm coming from? And what do you think about that? No, definitely. And this is coming off the, off the tales of, uh, well, tales from the crypt, which was yeah, big at yes. HBO at the time. So all of a sudden it's like, Hey, anthology horror anthology. Let's, you know, let's see what's going on. So Showtime, of course, probably was like, Hey, we got, we have a, a block, you know, let's just push this, this content edgy, you know, make, throw in some, profanity and some nudity or whatever it's maybe they felt like the 60s aesthetic was too safe maybe i don't know they wanted to edge it up for for the the 90s you know <laughs> <laughs> well i think there, there's a there's a way to do that like tell you can tell mature stories but like in a, a family-friendly way but they they told mature stories in an extreme mature way and you know i just that always like they didn't jive with like what the Outer Limits was, in my opinion. Like the say what you feel about the Twilight Zone remakes, right? I feel like they were all like, okay, I can see how this is the Twilight Zone. Like even though they were the various levels of quality, right? Right, I mean, right. And again, I'm no Outer Limits expert, okay, but I just felt like there was a huge. You could have, like you said, Tales from the Crypt. You could have called the new Outer Limits Tales from the Crypt, and I'm like, okay, yeah. Uh, now there are some great episodes in there. I've seen a lot of them, but a, a lot of other ones, I'm like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. There's it's it's weird. It's like more folks from our generation are more forgiving of of the '90s. I mean, we acknowledge there are some turkeys in there, <laughs> but 
um, a lot of folks who grew up with the original absolutely like this is trash. It's what even waste your time. Like I, I, I entertain the idea of, of once I finish this run of doing the new series, and the feedback has been fifty fifty from like older folks saying like oh don't waste your time to folks our age saying like oh yeah dude totally I I remember a few good episodes in that why not go for it and it's you know I I, I go back and forth on it sometimes because it's especially now that I'm like so deep into the original series, there's, I feel like they were just trying to be edgy for edgy's sake. Where, and then even like Leslie Stevens, was, they kept him minimally involved. And then once he passed away, they kind of went off the rails with everything. Like, like to me, it was like sex, nudity. Exactly. I'm like, oh, what are we doing here? Like I'm old fashioned. <laughs> this is the original series podcast. I'm a young guy, but I'm kind of an old fashioned guy, to be honest. Right, right, right. I don't know, man. That, that, that's my sensibility on it. But hey, if you ever cover that on the show, I'd be like, that's an excuse to watch it because the old and the new Outer Limits are both available on Hulu. So Definitely, yes. <laughs> and and so has there been any talk about a new Outer Limits after that one? or? Well, once it ended, you know, it was, it was pretty much dead and buried. But I read um, some, I read online from the old trustworthy internet that, <laughs> that, with Twilight Zone being so popular now that there was talks of them rebooting The Outer Limits yet again, but nothing really came of that. So hopefully, you know, it comes up again and talks go further. I mean, I think what better time than now? Anthology series, anthology television is on an uptick, and I think the time is now. If you, I mean, granted, the show ended in the early 2000s, but I think the time is right. If, if they do that, if they get some great writers, we can... We can definitely see a world where the Twilight Zone and the Outer Limits coexist yet again. All right, Victor. Well, it's been a lot of fun talking about the Outer Limits and the original series stars who, and guest stars who appeared on the show uh, more than we thought when we got into this. But if people want to find you out there on the internet and find your continuing coverage of the Outer Limits, where can they find you? Well, if folks want to find me online, you can search for at Outer Limits Pod on Twitter and then um, on on Instagram, you can find me by just searching for the Outer Limits podcast. I'm the only one there, so it won't be too hard to miss. Zach, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm a huge fan of your podcast, and it means a lot that you you know took the time out of your day to even welcome me on the show. It's they say that the nicest folks you ever encounter are Star Trek fans, and I'm happy to say that you kept that alive in <laughs> in my eyes. And so, thank you so much for being so welcoming and. And so great to chat with today. Oh, absolutely, man. I mean, fandom brings people together. That's the great thing about it. I and mean, that's what I'm in it for. You know, uh, I mean, we all like the same things. And, uh, you know, I like to think because we, we we all gravitate towards the same media. We have the same kind of mindset and all that stuff. So I, I've made some great friends doing podcasting and stuff. And, and it's been fun to connect in this way and geek out about something that, you know, that I kind of know about, but don't. I mean, to, so that's like to me, that's unique because usually I'm like, I like Star Trek. I therefore know everything about Star Trek or the Twilight Zone. But the Outer Limits, I'm like, yeah, it's cool. I know about it. But I feel like like a like an average person in my, in my fandom <laughs> of that. So, you know, you know what I'm saying, though, right? Absolutely. Definitely. So, yeah, no, it's, it's been great fun talking to you about that today. But The Outer Limits isn't the only thing we've been talking about this week on Trek FM. Here's a quick look at what else you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, The Ready Room. Is this the Supernatural Klingon episode? What is this going to be? And then it just turns out to go in, you know, go in and you know, dig your own time crystals, State Park. I mean, it's like... <laughs> Okay, I well, Larry, again, you know, he, you, he you, you go in there and you there's a 
like a, a basket type thing there, and you, you put in your 10 quat lose, and you mm-hmm. get 60 minutes to dig your time crystal. Darsex. Darsex. Yeah. Yeah, actually, the Klingons want Darsex, don't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you go in, and actually, however many time crystals you can dig in 60 minutes, you get to keep. But the catch is they're time crystals. So 60 minutes to one person <laughs> is only a minute to someone else. That- Literary Treks. Uh, we have the conversation between Pike and the uh, the Star, Starfleet Admiral Terrell uh, about the specifics of why they were kept out of the war. This is even before we're in a situation where they have no choice but to stay out of the war. They couldn't go back if they wanted to. By you know, sort of setting up the the, the milestones in the story for this is about when this is happening during season one. Uh, you know that allows us to tell our own independent story within that, but yet also you'll always know where you are in the regular TV show. Earl Grey. That question about whether life exists, either yes it does, because like enough time has elapsed and there's enough planets out there, or no it doesn't, because we are that race. Oh. <laughs> that seeds yeah. life elsewhere in the universe. At the some the point other in the answer is it did, but they all destroyed themselves. You know, but that's that's also kind of unlikely that you'd have lots of civilizations all doing the same thing and destroying themselves. I think. But to the journey. <laughs> in the that's all I could think about with that this one. Is, this is the Seinfeld in space episode. And keep waiting for Elaine to show up. I'm trying to think of what Jerry Seinfeld would say in Jerry Seinfeld's tone of voice inside this episode. Can you do can you can you do a good Jerry Seinfeld? Oh, good grief, no. Not even close. I'm trying to think how I would approach doing a Jerry Seinfeld impersonation. It's not coming to me. <laughs> He's got that super high pitched da 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 kind of I don't know, kind yeah. of voice. Well that you did really well, the da 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 da. So yeah. There you go. Why don't they just warp out of here? <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, you can get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MB3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact and look at the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, and the Babel Conference. Type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at trekfm.com and click discussion on the menu bar. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals, our different milestone contribution levels, along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credit, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our associate producers for Standard Orbit. They are Norman C. Lau, Nick Anastasio, Tim Robertson, Richard Marquez, Corey Elrod, Dan Rhodes, 
and Mike Richards. Your contributions, your help, your support, they mean the world to us, and we appreciate you being associate producers on Standard Orbit. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach, that's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Hold On to Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that Young Superman show. You can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville with one S. I'm also the co-host of Franchise Fatigue, a podcast where we look at sequels, remakes, movie franchises, and when a franchise gets fatigued. You can find us on Twitter at UFP Earth, part of the United Federation of Podcasts. So thanks everyone for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit. We now return control of your television set to you until next week at this same time when the control voice will take you to the outer limits.